All right. How we doing? It's good to see you guys on Christmas Eve Eve. I had a couple special guests with me the previous service. One was my sister. That's fun. One was a seminary prof who came to Austin. He wants to know what's the secret sauce. How is the United Methodist Church thriving in the urban core? He's a United Methodist clergy, so is his wife. And after the service, he's like, yeah, well, the musicians don't suck. I'm like, yeah, they don't suck. <laughs> That's the secret sauce. Thank you, Lamar. Oh, it's good to be here. Um, this was, last year, this exact night, our very first service in this building. How many of you guys remember that? We were crammed in here. It was still red and green and pews and five colors of brown. And we had, that, we had the rail up here and that ratchet screen that was literally bungee corded to the rail. Y'all remember this? There's pictures of it somewhere out there on social media. It's been one year, and here we are. How fun. What an interesting an amazing year it has been. So grateful for it. Glad that you were able to join us on this special day. Some of you might need a little help understanding why do we do a Christmas Eve Eve service? Well, when you're a Bush League church renting space anywhere you can rent cheap space, the one night of the year that nobody uses their space is Christmas Eve Eve because it's not a holiday. There's actually, it's actually not a thing. So we could always find something to rent on Christmas Eve Eve. And so then it just became part of who we are and we thought, well, heck, why change now? It's been working for 10 years. So that's what we do. That's why we do Christmas Eve Eve. So if you come tomorrow for a special Christmas Eve service, you'll be all alone. Or if you come Christmas Day, oh, please don't, because then you'll really be alone. So this is our only Christmas service. We have been talking during Advent about the humanity of God. And those three words together are designed to make us think. I hope you've been thinking about that concept. It's a big idea. The humanity of God specifically in the birth of Christ during Advent. So we've been looking through the lens of a couple of different perspectives. And I have to say, this is the central truth of the faith that we profess, and this is what it is. That God did not merely see us, love us, defend us, and preserve us, God became us, right? Which is an entirely different thing. It's an entirely different gospel than the one I grew up hearing. We've been looking at this unimaginable truth through the eyes of the ancient prophets who told us it was going to happen, through the eyes of Zoroastrian priests that we call the Magi. You can call them the kings or the Magi or whatever. We've even looked at it through the eyes of the shepherds who Lamar helped us understand last week could probably be directly associated with our refugees of our day. And now we're going to look at, at the birth of, of Jesus through the eyes, my favorite lens of all, through the eyes of the Virgin Mother, that simple simple person who said yes to the Holy Spirit. Oh, today we've got courtside seats to the greatest show on earth. It's my favorite subject. We're going to contemplate together the deification of humanity, right? The divinization we've been talking about of our earthiness, not something to be ashamed of. God found it to be sufficiently nurturing to entrust us with himself, right? We're going to be looking at the uplifting of a broken situation through the eyes of history's most unlikely heroine. Now, yesterday morning, I kid you not, I woke up and I told my wife, man, I wish Jen would let me preach about Mary sometimes. And then we went to the Christmas staff party, and over candied bacon and grapefruit mimosas, Jen confessed that she had nothing for today. So I'm like, yes, it's my moment. You find Jen Hatmaker without words like once a year. It happened, I guess, they were skiing all week, and she just didn't get her head together, so I moved in for the kill. Actually, I was voluntold. My wife's like, you're preaching on Mary tomorrow. But, I've, but there's something about 
her voice and her contribution, how she summarizes this whole thing to wrap up Advent that is just, it preaches itself. Here's the thing. Among Protestants, Mary remains practically undiscovered. I don't know if you've noticed that. I can't recall, in fact, a single sermon I ever heard growing up that talked about Mary. Not one. Not a single sermon. But I can say this, and it confuses my Catholic friends. I call her the Blessed Mother because she called herself that, and then she prophesied that all nations for all times would call her that. I can't explain my affection for her. Perhaps it's what we call in Spanish, el encanto de lo prohibido, the allure or the enchantment of the prohibited or the off-limits things, right? I was an evangelical missionary kid growing up in Mexico, and we were taught, fear the virgin mother. She's the virgin terrorist that creates all the idolatry in the church, right? We were taught to be very, very afraid of the Blessed Mother. And maybe it's because I have pushed beyond that and found something so compelling. Maybe that's why I'm so in love with the story of Mary and all of her various apparitions throughout history. And yes, I'm including Guadalupe in that. Maybe she is the perfect antidote to the machismo of the culture in which I grew up. Maybe she shows tenderness and concern for the broken where religious violence and institutional judgment seemed to rule the day when I was coming up. Maybe it's that she always appears wrapped in the cultural symbols of the indigenous peoples. Go back and do the history on it. You'll see what I'm talking about. Helping even the most insignificant indigenous peoples find their own way into divine revelation because it looked like their skin color and it was wrapped in their symbols. Maybe that's why. Maybe it's this. Maybe she obliterates once and for all the category insignificant. You, feel, you hear what I'm saying? Maybe she eliminates it entirely. On, in every measurable sense, she was the most insignificant person in this story, according to the culture of her day. However, her simple response, the supreme invitation of humanity to welcome the scandalous proposal of God becomes the very greatest of anything that we can boast as a human race. Whatever the reason, I have enduring affection for the Virgin Mother, for Virgin Mary. Her lens, her proximity to the incarnation, her manger side perspective stands alone among the great moments of history. Luke says that after Mary responded in the affirmative to the Annunciation that she traveled to visit her cousin Elizabeth. And the story goes like this. When Elizabeth saw her from afar, coming towards her, the baby, John the Baptist, that it would be leapt inside of her for joy. Elizabeth understood what Mary carried inside of her. The greatest minds of faith throughout all of the centuries have struggled over the centuries to make sense of this little Mary, of this tiny teenage soul. Some have gone so far as to call her the co-redemptress. Others call her the mother of God. Uh, to, and some, uh, some of them claim that we ought to do our intercession through her because of her unique position in the Godhead. I get it. Honestly, I actually do understand how they end up with that language. You may not agree with this take, but let's be honest. At least it's a tiny bit better than what we did in the evangelical church, which was simply leave her voiceless, nameless, and unmentioned. So you might overstate the case and call her co-redemptress, which is a little better than not calling her name at all or not noticing her at all. Well, thanks, patriarch. We don't expect a whole lot more from you when it comes to teenage girls and their role in the redemption story. We didn't expect her to have this preeminent role in, you know, late Western American misogynistic evangelical theology, sorry. But what if we did this? What if we started our own feminist revolution? What if we said, let's let her speak for herself? Let's evaluate her, not on the theology we extrapolate from her story, but what if we just allow her song to be her story? How scandalous would that be to let her speak for herself? And that's what we're going to do tonight. Let's give her her own voice. 
Let's give her her own ability to summarize her perspective. I can tell you this, anyone who's alarmed at the fact that God would reveal himself uniquely and invite a teenage girl into this redemptive story, anyone who's alarmed at that hasn't read her song because the socio-political economic upheaval that she's about to introduce that's gonna come with the birth of this child is far greater than the fact that she was a voiceless teenage girl. You know that, right? That's what we do down here in the 512. We disregard the message because we don't like the messenger. We say, no, 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 I got issues with the messenger, so let's just not even deal with the prophetic truth. And here's the problem. Listen to me. The future legitimacy of the things we hold most dear are about to be upset with the birth of this child. What things, preacher? Oh, just power and privilege and wealth and influence, all the things that we stand for in this great country of ours are all about to be undone with the birth of this child. Let's read that from chapter one in Luke. Luke preserves her song this way. Verse 46, and Mary said, this is in response to Elizabeth's response to her, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my savior for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on all generations, this includes us, will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. Oh, church, let me tell you one thing I know to be true. Mary saw clearly what she was giving birth to. She understood in ways that we still struggle to understand. Here's what she understood. Empire was officially over. Power was to be overruled. The bottom would now be the top, and the lowly was to be elevated and promoted, finally noticed and satisfied once and for all. This is a political manifesto that she gives birth to in the world in the form of her song. You know, there are some truths that are so lofty, they're so out there on the ragged edge of my ability to cognate and to explain. As an example, I don't know, adults dressed in pajamas at church Christmas parties or a $5 billion wall. Anyway, there are things that are so lofty, so amazing, so beyond my ability to understand that I think they, they, that they're best left in the category of mystery. They defy explanation. And I think Mary and her role in the redemption of the world is one of those things. The maturity, the honesty, the humility of this child, what else would we call her, would, would go on for generation after generation as an example of how humanity ought to respond to the movement of God. His adoring gaze on her gave birth to God himself as we hold that to be true now. It's something that we can at best contemplate but never fully encapsulate or explain. Here's what we learn from her song. No one, even a peasant girl, is too insignificant. In fact, humility is a magnet for the adoring gaze of God. It's the magnet for the attention of God. So great was Mary's contribution to the redemption of the world that all of us, for the rest of time, would hold a unique place for her. We learn that God's mercy is timeless and it is universal. It is not just for some, it is for all. And we learn that he lowers the status of the proud and of the rulers. He takes no account of their influence while he lifts up the humble, the simple, the conquered, the vanquished, the dispossessed, 
the disenfranchised, the wandering refugees of our world. He elevates the forgotten and the voiceless. Just in case it still isn't clear, we learn this from her song, that money and power and influence are nothing to this God who will fill the bellies of the hungry while those with resources will go away empty. Here's the truth. Hunger moves God, not power, not influence, not the princes and the kings and the queens of our time. It's hunger that moves God. His promises are timeless, and oh, he remembers, church. He remembers. Imagine it. Imagine stroking the tiny newborn face of God. Think of that moment. Imagine knowing that you nurtured and weaned and fed with your breast the future of all humanity in its prototype form. Imagine that it was your job to put skin on the seamless code dwelling of the divine and the human all at once in the man Jesus Christ. Imagine what a moment. What a moment. I don't paint, but if I did, I would try to capture this moment with everything in me. I don't sculpt or draw or compose musical masterpieces, but boy, if I did, I'd give my life to immortalize this one single human moment. This one tiny yet mighty teenager who said yes to God. Oh, what a moment. This singular soul who gave birth to heaven so that we might all know that we possess in us the very divine nature of the God she put skin on. Can you hear that? My God, that's worth a hundred grand in a seminary degree right there. That's the whole thing, to know that this tiny soul said yes so that we might know that our dirty, mundane, simple lives possess the very presence of the divine. Oh, if we could dig deep enough to find in us a simple yes down deep in the doubt and the wonder and the fear. Oh, if we could just be like Mary for but a second and say yes to God. What life would he give birth to? What new world would step out of that confession? And that's the gospel for us today, this fourth Sunday of Advent. The prophets warned us. Foreign priests of foreign faiths came and told us the movement of the stars saw the continuation of science to be the birth of God and the baby Jesus Christ. The shepherds, the simplest, forgotten ones of all, were the first ones to the side of the cradle. But this summary this simple yes of a virgin mother encapsulates it all. This is the whole invitation. This is the point of Advent. God wants to dwell among us. It was always his idea. And if we can but embrace that simple yes, then we can be that place where he dwells. Let's pray that we might do that today. As a benediction, body of Christ... What does it mean that our God climbed down into the skin of a mother and her child? It means our God doesn't hide in the cold maths of space, the sterile logics of an ology, a password buried in a book. It means our God doesn't hide in the algorithms of Instagram to see how grateful you are, how inhuman you can look. It means our God doesn't hide on a mountaintop behind a personality test at the end of a performance plan or a diet. It means there's no secret. Our God is a body, not a concept. You are someone's child, not an argument for or against. You can't make God love you. You can't convince him not to. And he doesn't have to. Who told you that he would? But he does.
So go in peace in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Merry Christmas.